Listen as Dr. Stephen Pipe from the University of Michigan and Nigel Key from the UNC School of Medicine discuss interpreting vector doses in hemophilia gene therapy clinical trials. This podcast is part of a comprehensive educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia. Visit www.genetherapy.isth.org for more information. Hello, this is Nigel Key from the University of North Carolina. I'm here talking with Steve Pipe from the University of Michigan about some aspects of gene therapy trials in hemophilia. Steve, one of the interesting variables from the clinical trials has been quite a wide range of vector doses that have been used in the various clinical trials. And one might reasonably ask, how come we are so far apart on this? And what is the significance of the vector dose? And could you tell us something about the the range and what do you think that it's telling us? Yeah, I think if you look across all the clinical trials to date, we've seen doses as low as 10 to the 11th and as high as uh, the mid-range of 10 to the 13th. So you've got a hundred-fold difference in vector dose. Um, so the first thing is, you know, what are we talking about? It's, it's typically presented as vector genomes per kilogram is the dosing. So it's a weight-based dosing. And the assay that's used appears to be proprietary to each individual manufacturer preparing these vector. Um, So it's supposed to give a guidance for how many particles you're delivering, and it should have some relevance to the expected outcome for the patient. The reason it would be uh, measured in vector genomes, presumably, is because there is some percentage of uh, particles Uh, We consider them empty capsids, so they've been, um, if you like, incompletely packaged, so they don't have the the full transgene components, and this has been recognized in AAV gene therapy technology from the beginning. So if there's a hundredfold difference, um, why might that make a difference? I think always the idea would be to deliver the minimum amount of vector genomes per kilogram to achieve the expected outcome. As you go higher, uh, we've seen some evidence from the clinical trials that the dose correlates with the risk of either cellular immunity or even perhaps uh, cellular stress observed in the uh, factor eight trials. Uh, So if you can get a good outcome and keep your doses relatively lower, then you might reduce the likelihood of Uh, generating that cellular capsid-specific T-cell responses. We definitely won't be able to compare directly uh, one trial to the other because, um, as far as I know, these assays are relatively proprietary. I'm sure they're reviewed by the regulatory agencies, but they're nothing that anybody uh, will be performing of their own. So it's almost like accepting the unit dosage on a vial. So this vial is going to come with a labeled uh, vector genomes um, that will then be part of the calculation for the dose the patient gets. I think for the clinicians who are interested in this field, what they should be paying attention to is how this is driving continued innovation for AAV technology. So if we're striving to keep doses lower to reduce some of the 
immunologic or cellular stress manifestations of AV, uh, liver-directed gene therapy particularly. So things that we can do to keep doses down would include using a hyperactive molecule. So uh, the example would be using the Padua factor IX transgene instead of the standard factor IX gene. Um, that hyperactive mutant gives you anywhere from a six to eight-fold boost in factor activity without having to uh, increase your vector dose to get you to that level. So that's, that's one innovation. That innovation hasn't yet been brought clearly to factor eight because we haven't been able to identify a hyperactive factor eight mutant. But at least one of the trials is using a uh, modified transgene factor eight where uh, the B domain has been substituted with a, uh, a small domain that includes clustered asparagine-linked uh, oligosaccharides. And this is intended to boost the secretion of the factor eight. And so this is uh, at least leaning towards being able to get better expression, yet keeping the uh, vector dosages uh, reasonably low. The second way that you could approach this is you could bioengineer AV capsids, which are more efficient at transducing the hepatocyte. Um, and I, I think that's a platform that underpins one of the uh, companies. AV technology, this, this would be the, the Spark Therapeutics platform, is to use bioengineered capsids that would allow the vector dosages to be kept lower and perhaps reduce the risk for cellular immunity. And I think if you compare their vector genome dosages in their trials to some of the other trials, you will see a respective difference there. So for now, those are the two technology innovations that I th see trying to keep vector dosages down. Um, but ultimately, you know, once the product's approved, it's going to be a fixed dose and everyone will just sort of accept what the manufacturer has presented as uh, uh, how they measured that particular assay. So one of the things you mentioned, Steve, was the empty capsids. And for my part, at least, I'm not aware that those data are freely available um, with any particular AV preparation or even batch to batch. Do you see that as being an important thing that should be looked at in more detail? It's um, well, I, I believe, yeah, I, I believe it is being looked at. Um, maybe it hasn't been widely presented at scientific meetings at this point. Um, I would say to date, because you're talking about very limited numbers of patients, I think they haven't been armed with enough data to even make any um, assessments of, of the impact. I certainly can't speak to batch-to-batch -batch variability. That will have to come, you know, with the later presentations from the from the different clinical trials. But if within the larger phase three, there are some differences in the empty to filled capsid ratios, and they have sufficient numbers to, to to look at the correlations, then I think that would be very interesting. And that would obviously be important for all trials from, from a manufacturing perspective going forward. But I, I think the range historically has been maybe as high as 80 to 90% empty capsids, and then the reverse has also been true. So um, if there's a correlation with toxicity or clinical outcomes, that's gonna be an important measure to, uh, to try to get at the bottom of. Mm -hmm. And as you say, it's more or less a one-size-fits-all if 
if the size is calculated on weight and many things are, but I presume that the, the data as it accrues will may refine that as well as the optimal weighted dose. I'm guessing, I don't know that most of that data came through preclinical models um, in terms of um, efficacy versus weight-based dosing. Um, are you aware of any other data? Or, uh, it's presumably reasonable. That's not the point that it's not unreasonable to go on a weight-based dosing, but have you heard any discussion about about this uh, with extremes of weight? And we may not see it in the clinical trials, of course. Yeah, I, I think we won't see it in these, uh, even in the phase three trials, because I think uh, many of the studies have set weight uh, caps for enrollment on the studies, um, anywhere in the range of maybe 120 to 150 kilograms. So in the general population, there may be some hemophilia patients that are outside that, and um, it may be that uh, if they are eligible in a commercial phase, um, there may still be a cap in the total number of vector genomes. I guess the question in my mind is, you know, does your liver size really change that much uh, even uh, as you, you get into the upper reaches? To me, I think it's less about the weight-based dosing. I'm more concerned about NASH, if you like, um, the impacts of obesity on, on the liver and how that may relate to the efficiency of transduction um, and the outcome for the patient as far as their expression level and also for uh, toxicity issues related to the uh, gene transduction. So I think we're, we're probably going to be left with the weight-based dosing, maybe a cap on the outside, but I'm more concerned about the obese patients for those other reasons and not so much related to the total dose. Earn your CME credit by clicking the link for credit. Check back for more podcasts on gene therapy and hemophilia. Additional education is available on www.genetherapy.isth.org, an educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia.